To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So today is a new guest, Lucas Pog. This is the first time I've had Lucas on the podcast, and really the first time we've had an in-depth conversation. Uh, but but Lucas is an absolute killer. Uh, he goes all over the country in multiple different states, different habitats, uh, different species, and, and he just seems to find success with his bow. And for that matter, he goes all over the world. Travels to some incredible places, just lives to adventure hunt. And and we talk about an upcoming sheep hunt that he has that, that may or may not happen. We'll see if they open the borders. But we talk about this sheep hunt and his preparation for it, um, both physical and his shooting. And, and, and really, you know, when I have these guys on the podcast, it's no surprise that they're consistently successful. He, he just pays attention to all the details. You know, everything's been thought out. Everything's been tuned. So uh, a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think you guys are going to enjoy it too. I want to thank our sponsors real quick. I want to thank Mountain Archery Fest. So Mountain Archery Fest, uh, they run the 3D shoots where they use the ski resort uh, where you ride the chair up and then you walk down these different courses. Uh, I've been watching guys been having a ton of fun with this. So they've already pulled off three events. They have their final event coming up. That's going to be at Purgatory Resort in Durango, Colorado, July 17th through the 19th. Um, they have that Pope and Young course with all replicas done of the world records, and, and they, try to, they try to create the exact same shot that that hunter had on that world record. So just some amazing targets. They've got challenging courses. Uh, they, you can keep score. Um, just, just an amazing event and I'm going to make sure I at least get one of these things next year. Uh, everybody I've talked to that's gone to the event has had so much fun. So congratulations, congratulations to, to Mountain Archery Fest pulling off these events in a tough time. And if you're around Durango, Colorado, July 17th through 19th, make sure to check them out. Elevate your 3D experience with Mountain Archery Fest. I also want to thank Zamberlin Boots. Zamberlin is the the best pair of boots I've ever owned. I absolutely love these boots. So I've been a tennis shoe guy here for a while, and I've been running that lightweight tennis shoe in the mountains. Uh, but but since I went with this low-cut Zamberlin boot, I'm using the, the Zamberlin 320 Trail Light GTX. Uh, it's just made me a believer in a light boot. It actually saves, you know, calf fatigue as, as you're... Your ankle is laced in there and seems to propel you down the trail. Uh, it also helps with side healing uh, and, and overall leg fatigue. So I've just found these to be a better boot for me in the mountains. And, and they're absolutely waterproof, which is amazing. Wet grass or, or rain conditions to keep my feet dry all the time has been great. But but they just make a great boot, Vibram sole. And they've got a bunch of different options for different preferences. So you can go check out these boots. They actually have them at one of our other sponsors, Sportsman's Warehouse, where you can try on oh the 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 33 Iger Light GTX RR, the Thousand Baltera GTX. 
Another one of my favorite shoes they make, which I end up using on easier hunts, and they don't advertise this as a hunting boot or anything, but they make this this shoe that's built a little bit more durable, and it's a one-piece leather. They're super comfortable, and I can do a bunch of miles in those. Um, they're their 103 Hike Light RR. I like those as well. Uh, but just a great company that's committed to bring bringing the the highest quality of materials and craftsmanship to their boots. If, you, if you're in the market for a new boot this season, make sure to check out Zamberlin. Over there at Eastman's, uh, make sure to check out uh, Tag Hub. We have over $16,000 worth of giveaways. And this Tag Hub program, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned it on the podcast, but I've been using it a bunch. It, it, it takes, you know, all our data from the MRS in the back of the magazines and more. They're constantly updating this site, improving this site, and making it better. But, but every one of these units for every different species in every different state, you, you can search and get, you know, the, the harvest success for the last three years. You can get uh, uh, the, the counties they were shot at. There's so much great information. In fact, I just saw an email come through that the guys were putting together where they, they, they looked at all the Pope and Young trophies entered into the record books and then looked at the dates they were harvested to, to be able to catalog the best dates to hunt elk. And so that information will be in Tag Hub as well. But it, it, it's just a, a great program for Western hunters to really learn these states, learn these different units, and, and what's going on out west so you can take advantage of it. So it's called Eastman's Tag Hub. It's through the internet, and then we're giving away $16,000 worth of gear. There's bows, there's a pistol, there's uh, gear bags, packs. I mean, you name it, it is in that gear giveaway, and uh, we're giving it all away to Tag Hub members. So if you're interested, make sure to check it out over at Tag Hub. Uh, the other things we got going on over there at Eastman's. Uh, make sure to check out the Beyond the Grid, the internet TV show. Uh, we're starting to release more of my episodes over there, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, check out our magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Got some good episodes coming up with that. And make sure to check out uh, our other podcasts. Uh, we've got uh, Eastman's Flycast. It's another passion project for me, all about fly fishing. Uh, just have some some great guests um, boy, this week I've got one of my buddies, Justin Edge. He's a local guy. He's been in the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal for killing bulls. He's just one of those all-around guys. It's a really good hunter, really good fisherman, and he owns an outfitting business here in in the Madison Valley. So I had him on the podcast. Extremely intelligent, great conversation, and uh, I'll be getting out later this week. I've got two days planned with my good buddy Dylan Ness, which I also have a podcast coming up. Uh, all about spot and stock elk hunting with Dylan Ness. He's another one of those guys, extremely successful fishing and extremely successful hunting. Uh, so we'll have him up. We're going to throw some salmon flies for a couple days, and uh, I'm sure I'll get him on a podcast here one of these evenings. But uh, it, it's a really fun podcast. I bring all the, the same energy that I, that I bring to Eastman's Elevated. So if you're interested, check it out. And with that, let's get into this. Uh, this is Lucas Pog. Um, he, he runs RNA podcast, uh, just a great guy and a great bow hunter Eastman's elevated. I'm your host, Brian Barney. Here we go. Okay. I'm live here. I got Lucas Pog. 
uh, host of RNA Podcast. Uh, thanks a bunch for sitting down with me, Lucas. Yeah, Brian, uh, it's uh, it's good to finally catch up. I know you and I have talked at uh, or, or tried to connect at like the Hunt Expo and other things, and those shows get crazy. So it's good to finally catch up on the line and and uh, and uh, catch up on a podcast. So thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. Uh, uh, I really enjoy your social media. Um, you do your podcast. Uh, seems like you're you're all over either bow hunting or fly fishing or enjoying the outdoors and um, also spreading the word about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I I, I think about you know kind of where I've come from and, and obviously where and you always reflect on things in, in your life. And you know, I was I was born and raised in Montana, so I'm. You know, my heart's still in Montana, although I now reside in, in the central coast of California. I've been here about 15 years, but I, I spent about 22 years of my life in Montana growing up and and really there found, you know, obviously the passion for for being outdoors. And uh, it started at a young age. My father, it was a way of life for us to, to go out and, and hunt and fish. And, you know, then it was jeans and flannels and it was, you know, it, it was that kind of hunting, right? It, it wasn't a, a matter of you know, getting the right pack and the right setup, it was about jumping in the truck with dad and, and going, you know, buck hunting or, or going, you know, northern pike fishing. I mean, that's how we grew up and it was a lot of fun. And, and uh, you know, I think it was probably, I would say, in my college years, I went to school and, and viewed at Montana Tech where I think I really fell into a, a love and a passion for, for archery hunting. And, uh, you know, living in southwest Montana, there's so many opportunities and and obviously living near, uh, you know, the Big Hole River, you know, a blue ribbon trout stream, just just found a passion for fly fishing. And I started to bring those two things together. And uh, it wasn't until I actually, I think I moved to California is when I really realized how, how good I had it in Montana. But, uh, but yeah, um, that's kind of where that fire started. And, uh, you know, since then, I would say I've been here for the last uh, almost 18 years now. Um, I've just made it a passion to um, travel the world with my bow in my hand or my fly rod and see places that, you know, probably most people will never see in their lifetime or adventure to places that, you know, less than 0.001% of the population will ever see. And, and, and those are the adventures that, that I really enjoy. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of those are, you know, I've, I've, I've hunted, you know, free range tar in New Zealand and, and spent, countless days going after tar, which I know you're very familiar with, Brian. I've hunted DIY moose in Alaska and Kodiak Island and, and been a lot of places around Alaska. And again, for me, it's those places where when you get dropped off, you probably couldn't even walk out of those areas and, and survive. Those are the places that, that I want to be. So anyway, that's kind of where a little bit of history and some of the passion of where my, my outdoor, um, you know, livelihood has come from. So Man, um, good for you. Yeah, you're uh, uh, really making the most out of this life. Like traveling to those places, like those are the big super adventures. Those they're they're almost they change your perspective a bit when you go on one of those big adventures like that, and you're all in, and, and you're really putting everything on the line. But it it it's so fulfilling, like having this passion or this love for something, and and something you know that that you don't make money at. Like it's just this want to be to be better to improve to uh test yourself and, and I, I i fell in love with sports as a kid and it, it just seemed like bow hunting kind of took that place after high school or after that you know and it it wasn't really competitiveness with anybody else but it was against myself and i started to learn like how difficult it was to put a perfect arrow in an animal a wild animal 
uh, you know, in a wild animal on public ground. And so that challenge is what hooked me is just being immersed, like always thinking about it. And then, you know, you just had to absolutely dedicate yourself to it like, like you have that you have to live that bow hunting 365 lifestyle, constantly be thinking about it, working on it and improving it just so you can be ready for that chance when you do get that super adventure. And, and right along with that super adventure, there's there's so many great ones that we can take advantage of in the States, you know, uh, elk in a different state or high country mule deer. I know some of the same hunts that you enjoy, you know, I consider those just as much a super adventure in the most remote country of the lower 48 too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I think back and a lot of my inspiration, you know, comes from Chuck Adams and, and, uh, you know, and as a kid, you know, we grew up, you know, we rifle hunted, you know, and, and I remember taking my first deer, I think when I was, I think I was 12 years old and it was sitting in a tree stand and, in, in, you know, the Milk River in Northern Montana where I grew up and, and shot a white-tailed doe, you know, uh, you know, with this old Browning Micromitis bow. And I didn't really know what I had done. And, and, you know, I was reflecting on that, thinking about that experience and, and, uh, but it wasn't really until I, I started reading some of Chuck's books, you know, the complete book of bow hunting and his autobiography, which was not written by him, but Life at Full Draw was 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 another great book. And that's where I really, you know, I, I, I took in that adventure. I, I, I lived I tried to live those adventures that he would tell in his books, you know, like, you know, when Chuck got dropped off on Kodiak Island for the first time, the, the Super Cub took off and had both pairs of his boots on it. So he was stuck on the island for 10 days with a pair of muck boots, essentially. What does he do? He goes out and he kills two of the number one and number two sick of black tail bucks in Pope and Young, you know, record, which was still standing today, you know, and he did this in, in muck boots on the island. So that kind of stuff to me, it's like, you know, for someone to persevere and be that resilient to, to, to basically say, you know, hey, I'm stuck here. I'm going to be here 10 days until this plane comes back. I'm going to make the most of it. And that's how Chuck was and, and his passion for bow hunting. Um, you know, that, that's something that I, you know, obviously, um, you know, look to and, and, and it has inspired me over the years and, and uh, just really respect what, what Chuck has done for the industry. And, and, uh, you know, just as a person, just a, just a great guy as well. Hmm. Yeah. We're from the same era. Um, I was the same way. I grew up reading Chuck's books, all the ones you mentioned, the stories that you mentioned, um, I grew up and my family all rifle hunted and uh, I, I wanted to bow hunt originally. It was, um, you know, it, it was to take advantage of some, some seasons. I could hunt earlier and I could hunt later. I could hunt longer than uh, my family with the rifle where we only get, you know, the four days for extended buck in Washington. And this is Washington before I moved out to Montana 20 years ago or so. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I just, uh, you know, I got a bow, you know, not only I, I say to take advantage of the seasons, but it was also, there was just something cool about it, like trying to sneak in close and get close to these animals. And then, yeah, I remember reading Chuck Adams' book. No, it wasn't too long after that. Uh, Cameron Haynes' book came out. And I was hunting by that time, and I was in Montana and made it a part of my life. But, you know, then I got to see a, a guy take it to a whole nother level that was 10 years older than I was, that was really going for it. I was like, man, I just want that adventure in my life. And, and I started to to dive into it and and just find my own adventures. And when I first started, you know, it wasn't the cool thing to do. There wasn't anybody hunting high country mule deer. I say there wasn't anybody. There's been somebody since the beginning of time. But all these bow tags, 
they were so easy to get. These really yeah. sought-after tags, I could pick them up with zero, one, two points. Nobody was bow hunting these things, so I could go to to all the coolest places and really cut my teeth. You know, it, it was one thing to get proficient at bow hunting elk in my home valley, but then to be able to travel to a new place and immerse myself in that habitat and start putting the pieces of the puzzle together and trying to figure it out how to be successful, how to consistently find game and get stocks. And, and, uh, I just absolutely fell in love with it and, and just feel like I'm living a, a passionate life. And the, the more success, the more adventures I went on, the more I was planning and the more I was doing and the more I was preparing. I just, you know, I just fell in love with it. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, it opens up doors, you know, I mean, a lot of times what I find, I mean, you know, where I live now in, in central California, it's not like there's millions of, of, you know, acres of public land. I mean, it's pretty well locked down. It's, it's a lot of private land. And, and But there is some public pieces here that, that I found a lot of success on, you know, both um, deer hunting and pig hunting on and also turkey hunting. But, um, you know, here when, when you tell someone you're a bow hunter, they say, oh, OK, because everyone here kind of models the fact of being a rifle hunter and they don't want rifle hunters around. So you know, being a bow hunter sometimes opens up opportunities that way because, you know, people typically tend to think of a hunter as a guy with a shotgun or a rifle. He's going to be around my cows and I don't want him there. But bow hunting typically has a different feel to it and sometimes allows, you know, access to places or into areas where you can't normally do. And to further your point on tags, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there are so many good tags out there um, that are archery tags that, uh, you know, you can get for, like you say, sometimes you can draw it every year without a point in a state that's got a point system. And you can go hunt high country bucks every year and be into, you know, great class deer, right? 180, 190 class deer all the time uh, on these tags. And that's what I love about uh, this time of year, really from January till now. It's, you know, trying to set up your whole, you know, summer and fall season. And, and for us here, it starts early. So our our uh, blacktail season actually starts the second weekend in July. It's the earliest deer archery season uh, in the U.S. So, you know, we're starting here. We're chasing blacktails here in another month and a half. I've been out scouting for the last couple of weeks and, and already seeing bucks that are, I would say, three quarters developed, eye guards, and, and just a fun time of year seeing them in velvet. And uh, we're getting tuned up here for, for our deer season. And then that continues, uh, you know, obviously into elk season and, and uh, into the fall, which is, you know, for me, really where my passion lies is, is hunting the Western states, being in, back in Montana, you know, hunting elk September, October, and then trying to draw a few tags a year. And, and uh, actually already drawn a Nevada deer tag this year. So I'm excited about that. So that's on the plan this year. And I've got a, a Montana deer and elk tag as well, which I typically do every year. So just trying to fill in those voids and, and uh, you know, fill up uh, the year uh, with uh, with some good hunts. So, yeah, I agree 100%. There's so much opportunity with a bow when you really start to look at it. Yeah, congratulations. Um, it's awesome you get to start early. I, I love those early seasons. And, um, yeah, I won't be starting too long after you. It sounds like you're the, the middle of July. I've got a hunt coming up at the end of July. Uh, and go over to uh, Hawaii and hang out with my buddies out there and, and hunt those mouflon sheep and axis deer. So fun. Good warm awesome. up for the season. And then I was lucky enough to draw a Nevada tag as well this year. I get pretty aggressive with my applications in Nevada. I love their populations of deer down there and they sure grow some good ones. And it's just a, a fun hunt. Those early season mule deer when you could take advantage of them in, in August like that when they have their 
lack summertime attitudes and hanging in the high country in those bachelor herds just makes for such a fun hunt and um then like you say there isn't there isn't much more that's uh there isn't anything much more thrilling than hunting elk with a bow that that rut and the bugle um it being able to interact back and forth with elk and elk are so nomadic and they're such giant animals and you know they can have 60 inches of antler above their head and these screaming piercing bugles uh just makes your heart race and uh seems like you just do anything to catch up to a bull like that and it's it's tough too you know we talk about these hunts and these opportunities but but to a novice bow hunter it's almost overwhelming like it it takes years to build your skill level and and build your confidence and be able to go to these places and find these animals like we all have to start somewhere and and it's this it's this circle of knowledge that you 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 always continue to grow and continue to learn as a bow hunter but when you're first starting out it's all overwhelming and it it's just it's tough to even endure and be out in nature you know to be out on a mountain for 10 days up where humans aren't meant to live and have to pack everything you need up there, you know, it's, it's physically and, and mentally taxing and demanding. And so, you know, it takes just like with a starter hunt. And I always tell guys to start with like a high opportunity hunt. You hunt Montana a lot, uh, Montana for deer, some of the populations out Eastern Montana, or even, you know, Nevada drawing one of those high country hunts, but just those high opportunity hunts, antelope's a great one, you know, where you yeah. get to, to spot a bunch of animals, stalk a bunch of animals. And really these animals, you know, this, this experience that you have a field, it really teaches you, you know, if you pay attention, it, it, it teaches you how to be a better bow hunter. It teaches you what you can get away with and what you can't. And so I always tell guys to start with those high opportunity hunts, the fun ones where you're getting action, you're getting your heart rate up, you're getting chances, you're, you're stalking animals and you just kind of keep working your way up. And eventually, uh, you have your whole fall filled like, like, uh, guys like you and, and uh, other bow hunters around where, you know, I think I've got hunts planned all the way from about August. And then I did draw a good tag in January in New Mexico down there. And so, gosh, it's it's uh, I keep adding more and more hunts because I love the adventure. But uh, it, it's definitely going to be a full season. But it, it, it's out there for anybody to go get. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you 100 percent. And back to your comment about, you know, I would say kind of a novice or a beginning bow hunter it is there is no doubt that it's overwhelming and, and and what do they fill their head with they go on youtube they listen to podcasts i mean they, they want to learn and they see guys going out there and, and they you know they bugle they cow call this bull comes in they shoot the bull and they see that and they say man that's what i want to do and and there's nothing more like you say more magnificent than you know a giant bull coming in screaming his guts out you know wanting to either fight or breed because that's really during that time of year what they want to do uh, but but I tell people the same thing. I said, look at your opportunities. Everybody wants to go and hunt elk in Arizona, right, or New Mexico. And and I've hunted both of those states for elk. And uh, it's taken me, you know, basically the last 15 years to hunt each of them. So I tell people, I say, you know, that's good and, and have those thoughts, but always keep that in your five to year 10 plan, you know, five to 10 year plan. And for me, everything is, is, is batched out in, in my five year, 10 year, 15 and 20 year plan, which realistically some tags in the west can take 20 years to draw and i fortunately in some states started years ago where i'm max in some points and you know i'm max in california uh and i'm max in montana for for sheep and and elk and and moose and goat but other states i started 10 years ago right so 
that puts me on a 10-year track. But I tell people, go to Colorado, go to Idaho, go to Montana, go to these states where you can buy a tag over the counter, show up like Colorado. You can show up the day before the season, archery season, buy an elk tag, and you can be elk hunting the next day. And uh, I said, what I tell people, I says, you can't replace time in the field. And, and that's the key, I think, to all of it is, is if, as much as time as you can spend, whether it's scouting, um, whether it's just watching the animals and understanding their behavior certain times a year, that'll tell you so much. Because an elk right now is not an elk in September. And an elk in September is not an elk in, in November, December, right? Because they're so, they're so different. And to your point, in the summer, they're in their summer range and they're, you know, when they're in velvet, they don't like being in thick stuff because the velvet rubs on the trees and that hurts them. So they stand more out in the open. And then when they, they rub their velvet, they become a little more nocturnal, right? And then as you get them past the breeding cycle, they be basically hold up in sanctuary where they're almost impossible to find until they drop their antlers. So it, it's so neat to be out in the field and just watch the animals this time of year and then, and, and then segueing into, you know, when you're actually chasing them with a bow or whatever method to take, it is your method, right? And, and then seeing them after that, it, they're such a different animal and a different critter, but you know, again, I tell people, find opportunity, find places where on a budget, you know, you can go and put an elk tag in your pocket and go spend at least at least seven to 10 days. If you can spend seven days, you're going to get into elk. You're going to have an opportunity. Hopefully it's just the key is to capitalize when you have that opportunity. But it is tough being new. And, and, and I think, you know, we were all there at one point. Right. And some have taken many years to 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 harvest an elk. And, you know, I try to put two elk tags in my pocket every year to the extent that I can. And, uh, and just because I love, I love the passion of elk hunting. So but yeah, hundred percent agree. Opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. Yeah. Experience is King. Uh, I love your advice that you're giving out because you're, you're right. Even with these tags, like everybody wants, you know, a giant bull or a giant buck, but the, the deal is, is even these great tags that you talk about that you maybe draw every 10 years or every 20 years, you talked about, you know, the last, it's taken you the last 15 years to draw New Mexico and Arizona. I still haven't drawn New Mexico and Arizona and have been putting in for, for my 15 years, you know, that's on my long-term yeah. plan. But the goal, the deal is, is if you haven't built the skill set to go hunt one of these great units, you're not going to be able to field judge to even tell what a what a big bull is, and you just won't have the skill set to be able to harvest one of these next level critters because you haven't paid your dues or or gained that experience. Like you say, that every year you have two elk tags, you spend a lot of time in the elk woods, and and through that, you know you learn all those little things: uh, how to get into elk, how to glass them up consistently, how to scout terrain and and find where elk like, and then you know you take it all the way down. You know, you talked about, you know, seizing your opportunity and closing your deal. And it seems like talking on a podcast or sitting around thinking about it, you know, oh, you get within 40 yards of an elk, 30 yards of an elk, you put a perfect arrow, he's done. But the truth of the matter is, is delivering a, a perfect arrow under that fog of adrenaline, something that, that you've been chasing and working towards all year long, and you finally get this, you know, this, this opportunity and, and trying to seize that opportunity you know, I can tell you firsthand that it takes messing up a few times and get, you know, learning how to get control of yourself in those intense moments and, and then 
and then practicing that and, and knowing yeah. what it takes and then priding yourself on, on closing that deal when you do get that opportunity. Uh, it's, it's what bow hunting is all about, but it it is so difficult. It's so easy to sit here and talk about, but to deliver a perfect arrow on an animal that you've been chasing for days, really tough to do, and especially something so excitable as, as hunting elk, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, I always say about bow hunting, it's so rewarding and it's so humbling at the same time. And, and, uh, it, and I'm constantly reminded when I've got a bow on my hand, um, that how humbling, you know, it can be. And I mean, <laughs> this year I was basically on track to shoot three birds. You can shoot three spring birds in California. And here I am, it's Sunday, the last day of season. And I've got a gobbler coming in and our season closes at 5 PM. I've already, I've already tagged two birds in the season and Last day, I've got this nice bird coming in, and uh, we're working him, we're working him. He comes in to about 25 yards, and uh, I don't know if I didn't have my bubble level. I don't know, because he was he was full strut, getting ready to hit the decoys, and uh, I'm pretty sure I punched the trigger, but when I let the trigger go, I saw the arrow basically hit below him, and he pitched up and flew out, and I knew immediately that I hadn't you know, made a, a shot on that animal, and and fortunately enough, I, I missed so blatantly that I didn't even hit the animal, so it wasn't wounded. But, um, you know, I walked away from that experience. This was three weeks ago, right? And, you know, here I am getting ready to go, you know, hunt stone sheep in two months and, and all these amazing hunts I've done where I've been successful. And here I am, you know, beating myself up over missing, you know, this 20-pound turkey that was coming into decoys that was fully struck, fully puffed, didn't even know I was there. And uh, I slapped the trigger, you know, so it, it's it is it's constantly it's constantly telling you that you're you're never there. Right. And and uh, and I think that's to me the pinnacle of it is, you know, you can say some of these guys that we look up to have, have mastered the sport. But when you really talk to them or get in those conversations, they've had a lot of experiences where things didn't come together either on their end, you know, and, and that's how they learn. That's how we all learn. Right. Making mistakes and moving on. And, uh, I came back home that Monday. I literally set up my, my sequence in the back. I shot my bow. My bow was shooting lights out and I shot the same arrow, the same setup, same broadhead, everything. And I was, I was, I was dead on at 25, 30, you know, 20 to 30 yards. So I knew that it wasn't the arrow, that it wasn't the bow, that it was me in that instance. So, uh, again, constant reminder, uh, it's humbling, but our work is never done. Yeah, it's never done. Um, well, it's just good that that uh, you know you've learned to self-evaluate too. Like a lot of times, our ego wants to take over and make an excuse for it, you know. And and sometimes you can do everything right, and the animal can jump your string too, you know. They're, like the animal can react, uh, it can take a step. There's things that can go wrong, but evaluating those experiences and, and evaluating them. And really looking at yourself, like that's where self-improvement comes from, you know? Like if you just make an excuse and go, oh, that, that bird was moving right as I shot or I had to shoot quick because he was coming in, there's a million different ways that you could say that or that you could look at it in your brain. But instead you looked at it and went, you know, I did not execute my trigger right. I, I punched the trigger and none of us are immune to it. No matter how many animals we harvest, how good we get at it, you lose that focus for one second, you slap that trigger, that arrow doesn't hit, and you can't ever have that moment back, you know? And so yeah. it, it hurts. And, and we talked about, like, earlier, bow hunting, 
Bow hunting will take you to your highest highs, but the only reason it does that is because it'll also take you to your lowest lows. And would you really want that animal worse than anything? Like like your stone sheep hunt coming up, I'm sure you're just training like a madman right now. Yeah, And, and you want that opportunity, but when an, when an opportunity slips between your fingers or you mess it up, um, boy, that that hurts down to the soul, it seems like. Uh, those are yeah. tough pills to swallow, but all we can do, you can't have the moments back. So you just have to look at it. Uh, you know, I always try to be happy for the encounter because that's what I love about bow hunting. And then it's like all I can do is improve and get better. The next time I can execute flawlessly. And what do I need to do to do that? I need to, you know, work on this or I need to say this mantra to myself or I need to keep this in focus when I'm shooting. But if I look at it that way and then see it, it, and look at the the next opportunity, that's where I'm going to improve. Like, like that's what what drives me or at least that's what pulls me out of those slumps when i do hit those lows which which happen in bow hunting failure is a prerequisite absolutely and i mean if you haven't wounded an animal when it got away you you know you haven't bow hunted so you know and that's a part of it too and that that's the that's to me you know obviously the the lows of the lows and that's what you talked about you know it's one thing to to just miss i mean just blatantly miss you know airballing over their back or they take a step and, and you were nervous and, you know, completely just, you know, just blow the shot. But it's another thing to, you know, you know, to pierce the animal somewhere and, uh, you know, they get away and, you know, find them. And, and I mean, we've all, we've all been there, right. We all know it sucks. We've all been with a buddy on a hunt where they've done that. And you've spent, you've given up your hunt and the next day to go track that animal. And, uh, and that's the lowest of lows and, and that's where it hurts. But I, I think, Again, it's it's dusting yourself off and and uh, and you know figuring out self-diagnosing like you said, and that's what I do every time. I know if I blow something, I will take that arrow, that setup, if it's still shootable, I will go back and I will shoot that again just to rule out in my mind. Okay, it was the situation, it was the adrenaline, it was something going because right now I'm shooting on foam and you know I'm I'm, I'm shooting fine. So. Uh, it's always I'm always trying to troubleshoot my system to understand, uh, you know, where my failure is and which really gets to, you know, setting up a bow and, and finding the right bow and and, uh, and doing that whole process. You know, it, there's there's a science to it. Uh, I, I really do believe there's a science to it. Um, but I also think it's an art, too, and how you do that. I think it's both. And uh, and there's so many things you can get caught up in doing. But uh, there are. It is it is very essential to know that thing so well that if you had a failure in the field or had to do something to to you know improve that you could do that and versus you know a lot of folks go to a pro shop they buy a bow off the rack you know hey they go shoot at 20 yards they're you know they're hitting the target perfect at 20 yards and they go out in the field and, and it's like a whole new thing so um, being able to you know do some field surgery as needed on these if if needed and I've had to do that I was on my New Mexico elk hunt two years ago and uh, I was, I had a Halon 32 then and uh, my bow failed. My rest actually failed. And fortunately I had a backup bow there and, and I was not able to, uh, to put my bow on a press and fix it. So, um, you know, in those cases, you're fortunate to have that, but um, it does, it happens. And, and you got to know the bow well enough to, to know if you need to make a repair on it in the field, you can do that and, and still feel confident using it. So. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely spot on Lucas like your your weapon it comes down to that bow you know and and knowing it inside and out and all bow makers nowadays are building great bows like the technology we have 
I mean, I, uh, you know, when we started, bows were way different. And you look, you mentioned Chuck Adams. What he was hunting with was way different than what we get to hunt with nowadays. But it, it was him putting in the work and the practice, making sure his setup was dialed and, and, and having that thing and knowing it inside and out. And, and that's how he was able to del- deliver those perfect arrows. There's just not a doubt in my mind. And so this is a major part of the equation for, for taking up bow hunting is that commitment to that bow and setting it up correctly. I think, you know, a lot of times you're either setting yourself up for success or setting yourself up with f- for failure with a bow. Um, so yeah, it's, um, you know, there's a couple different routes to go. Um, but when you're, when you're looking at a bow, I always say the technology, you really notice the difference about every five years or so. So, you know, if you can pick up a a new bow about every five years and you can make them last longer, or you can get the newer technology in, in three years, but, but usually they're good for, for a good five years and longer. They'll hold up for longer than that, but that's where the technology really starts to get behind. But, um, you know, once you get a bow, there's a couple couple different routes, and it sounds like you do most of your own work on your own bow. Is that right, Lucas? Yeah, so that that's a good segue, Brian. You know, thinking about um, those two routes, I mean, there are really two ways to do it. You know, you can become a learner and, and kind of do it and learn it yourself, or you can have, you know, a pro shop and build a relationship there. And I, and I do want to spend a few minutes on that. I, I think it's so important to establish, you know, a relationship wherever you live, you know, typically there's going to be some pro shop within some, you know, amount of distance. And for me, fortunately, in in San Luis Obispo, we have a a great pro shop down there and owners are great guys. I've I've built good relationships with them. And uh, typically, like I just, you know, I got the new VXR this year. I'm a Matthews guy. and, And, you know, when you talk about technology, I started you know, with the SQ2, it was one of their first solo cams. Then I moved to an Outback. So actually I, I went backwards because I love the Outback so much. And I'll tell you today, that was close to 15, 15, 16 years ago. I still have that Outback sitting uh, as one of my backup bows because I, I love the bow. It's loud, it's obnoxious, but I'm, I, I've yet to find a bow uh, that shoots so well. And then I've progressed and I've had the Halon. I had the Verdicts last year, but with the VXR, um, you know, I, I took that down to the pro shop and uh, I work with them. And, and what we do is we sit down and I'll spend the whole morning with Joel with my bow and and we'll we'll take my sight and, and uh, you know, we'll get all three axes lined up and, and we'll get the sight locked in. Um, we'll set my rest. We'll get it right. We'll get it level. Then we'll tune my rest. Right. Which, in my opinion, is probably one of the most overlooked steps on a bow is getting the, the rest tune right. And, and, you know, for listeners wondering what that means, it's really based on when you're shooting your arrow, um, how does the arrow, you know, come out of the string? Is it fishtailing or, or one term is porpoising? If it's tearing one side left or right, that's telling you that, you know, at 20 yards, it's probably not a big deal, but at 60 yards, it's magnified significantly. So, you know, we'll be down there and we'll, we'll tune the rest and, uh, you know, we'll get the, we'll get the peep set right. And, um, you know, and, and it's just all the, all the, I would say the, the major work that requires a press, I'm going to take down to my pro shop and, and I'm going to, like I say, spend a morning with them kind of diving in and, and getting it just, you know, basically set up to the point where I can take it. And then what I do is when I take it, I take it and actually tune it myself. And, and a lot of the tunings for me specifically, you know, I've got micro rests so I can go, uh, you know, elevation and windage on rests. Um, you know, I do some micro tuning with my site, but I, again, I want to ensure that the axes are set up perfectly and, and, and level, but I'm always, 
I'm one of those guys that, um, you know, I shoot probably three to four arrows a day at most, maybe five arrows a day. And, uh, you know, people ask, you know, man, I shoot like 50 arrows a day and I'm practicing. And I said, well, that's great. I said, but if you're shooting 40 to 50 arrows a day and, and what you're doing is maybe your habits are not good, that's a bad habit forming 40 to 50 arrows you're shooting. I go out, I've got my block set up. I shoot at 20 and 30. I shoot three to five arrows. And Randy Ulmer put it to me perfectly when he said, perfect practice makes perfect. And what that means is, is I could go out and if I can shoot three to five arrows perfectly every single time, I'm done, right? I'm starting on a good note. I'm ending on a good note. I'm going through my pre-shot sequence. You know, everything feels good. I shoot three to five arrows. I'm not fatiguing myself and I'm done for that day, you know, and, and that's my practice routine. I shoot 3D once a week. I go out, I've got a, a 3D range. One of the ranches I shoot out, I go out every Friday night and I shoot and I extend out to 70, 80 and I shoot multiple different three range opportunities there. But my daily practice routine is three to five arrows a day. And I try to make each, I put every single little bit of energy into each arrow to make every shot perfect. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about kind of setting up my bow, uh, at least kind of from, uh, I would say I'm a more of a hybrid. I, I will use a pro shop. And, and again, I, I support the local business here. So, you know, I buy a lot of my accessories there and I go through them. And, and fortunately, Matthews has been sending me bows the last few years. That's been very cool. But I do try to support the local business here and take my bow in. And I'll just spend a morning, like I say, a morning with them, getting it set up. And I just really enjoy doing that because those guys do it every day. That's their job and livelihood. You know, I, I, I love to hunt and it's my passion. It's not what puts food on the table for me. So for me, that's why I, I, I think I love it even more because it's not my day to day. It's something that I just have a passion for and that love to do. So yeah, that's a little bit about uh, kind of setting up a bow, at least how I've done that in the past. So yeah, that's um, I love your attention to detail and yeah, there's, there's just different routes that we can go with this. And, and this is where we get to compare and contrast. And so this is what makes a podcast really fun. So um, yeah, I used to use the pro staffs and, uh, the, the pro shops and I like the way you do it where you go in and you sit with those guys and you spend a morning and you ask questions and you ask why they're moving this and why they're, they're moving that. And then working with the tune and working with these guys and you're right, they set up hundreds and hundreds of bows. They, they have tons of experience with these bows. Um, but, but the route I went is, is to always work on my own stuff. I know it inside mm -hmm. and out, but you can't just do this from a YouTube. You can't just read or buy a new bow and set this thing up from scratch. Again, just like bow hunting, it takes years and it takes, you know, I've had great mentors along the way. And I always say, if you want to work on your own bow, the first step is going to that pro that pro shop and hanging out with those guys and, and having you know they'll actually teach you they'll let you tie things in they'll let you mess mm -hmm. with your bow ask questions understand it like don't let it be a black magic to you understand what's going on with your bow why you're moving things and then you know you got down to your micro tuning and the guys at the shop they don't they don't have enough time to spend days on your bow you know they they can spend an hour or a morning on it they can get it tuned pretty good but but a lot of these guys they'll tune it to their own grip you know because it, not all pro staff guys are created equal let's say that so some yeah. of these guys will tune a bow to their own grip when really a bow needs to be tuned to the individual so it needs to be tuned to your grip to your pull to your draw everything that you do 
and if something isn't right with the per- with the right spined arrow and the right setup bow, you know, then it it may take a few lessons on your grip or on your form, and that's always humbling to have to make changes to your form. But those changes they make you a little bit worse before they make you better than you ever were, you know. And so yeah, you, you have to swallow your pride on these things, take advice from these guys, and make these changes. And so, you know, when I get a bow. Like I do all my own setup myself, but like I say, this has been from years of having mentors and having being surrounded by great shooters and being able to call these guys and ask them questions. Hey, this is tuning outside. Hey, this is doing that. Getting an answer, trying that, moving things around. And so throughout the years, you know, I've gained the the confidence of where, you know, I make all my own adjustments. But the same way you set up your bow is the same way I set up mine. So uh, you know, you're talking the bow, um, you, you mount your rest, you tie in your string loop, you want a level arrow going through your burger button hole, and then you talked about your rest tuning. And and most of this is done, at least most of mine, is done through a paper tuner. And, and just mm-hmm. like you stated, this is showing how those arrows are coming out of your bow. And you want those arrows to come out perfectly straight. Now, you can shoot good groups with an arrow that doesn't come out perfectly straight with field points. The minute you start sticking on broadheads, it's like sticking fletchings on the front of that arrow. Catches wind different, and it just doesn't make for the the most forgiving setup. So spending time with that paper tuner in your grip, and, and not only getting it to shoot a bullet hole through paper, but finding the most forgiving setup too, to where, you know, you don't have to do everything perfect to get a bullet hole. You know, you can kind of, uh, it, it, it's just a forgiving setup. You know, if I shoot 10 arrows into the paper and, and four of them have a low right rip, that's not a forgiving setup to me. Like I want to shoot all my arrows. So that low right rip, I'll try to take that out and I'll try to move things back and be in the middle. And so I really mess with that paper tune. Now, if you're if your tuning isn't going right, you know, there's a few things you can do. So you just start with moving your rest around up, down, left, right, depending on the tear of your arrow. Um it also has to do with the spine of your arrow. The spine is how stiff your arrow. So it'll react different coming out of the bow. And that spine, you can adjust that by cutting arrows shorter or longer. And there's there's uh, uh, charts that I use from Easton, from Gold Tip. Um, uh, even a more precise way is to use like Archer's Advantage, an internet program, to really find the perfect spine for the performance of your bow. But even then, all these bows are made in the factory. Sometimes... You'll get a little left or right rip, or maybe it tunes outside to an inch where where true center shot path, you want it at 13 sixteenths. And so you can actually move the tune of that bow, um, you know, some bows like like Hoyt's, uh, you know, you can, you can they, it goes to a Y cable. And so you can twist those strings, kind of move around that Y cable. The Matthews, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they have shim kits. And so you can take the cam apart and move the shim kit to get it just to tune right where you want it. Then the power path of that string and that forgiving setup. But that's so important. And then I heard you mention your sight. And, and the axes on your site are so important. First axis, second axis, third axis. And so you want to make sure your bow's completely level. You want to make sure your sights are completely level. And then you want to make sure your level inside your site's completely level. And then you even take it further to set your third axis for shooting downhill or uphill. But but all yeah. this setup and this attention to detail, it, it, it turns out like when you look at all said and done, you just have this forgiving setup bow to where even if you make a little mistake, 
you're not missing the bullseye by that far because this bow is just set up to shoot accurate, you know? And so, yeah. man, I mean, I, I just couldn't stress the importance of what you said more. Like, uh, we go the same route. And my practice is different than yours. See, I shoot a lot of arrows, and it's all about personality type. I mean, me, I, I'm 25 arrows minimum a day, 25 of perfect execution, like you said. Uh, but... I mean, I usually shoot 50 arrows a day. I like my muscle memory. I like my back to be strong. I like pulling hard on those strings. I like shooting and being so comfortable with that bow. It feels like an extension of me. But there, there's no wrong way to do it. We each have to just find our own route. And I have guys that are great hunters. Uh, Dan Picard shoots a trigger style. And he'll put his bow away for a couple months, and he kills more animals with his bow than nearly anybody else out there. We all just have to find the right system that meshes with our brain and our training. And, and two, like I like, it feels like I'm paying my dues. I'm always working towards that opportunity that I know I'm going to create this year. So, so for me, I shoot a bunch of arrows, but that's where we compare and contrast, and there really is no yeah. wrong way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like you were saying to Bill on your comment about, you know, that kind of that moment of truth, it's all these little things, you know, it's the confidence. And when, you know, like you said, if you're maybe even an eighth or a quarter bubble off on a, on a, maybe a, you know, a 20 degree incline shot, um, you know, if your bow's tuned right, all your axes are correct. It may, it may just be enough that it doesn't, you know, make that big of a difference, but if it's not tuned right, um, you know, it could be the difference that arrow's sailing right over the back of that animal. So it, it is, it's, it's locking everything in, it's shooting and, and knowing that you have the confidence. And it's one thing to, again, sit in the backyard and, and, you know, throw arrows down range and feel very confident. It's so different when you're under the circumstance of, you know, adrenaline pumping and an animal coming in, but it, it is, it's having the muscle memory. There's no doubt about it going through that sequence and, and, uh, you know, really capitalizing on the opportunity. That's what I tell everyone. I said, if you spend enough time in the field, that opportunity is going to happen and, and animals slip up from time to time. And if you're there during that time when they do, you just got to take uh, advantage of that opportunity. And uh, and that's the key. And, you know, just to another build on, you know, we talked about kind of the bow and the rest. But I mean, arrows, we, we you were jumping into that a little bit. But I'm an Easton guy, too. So, I you know, I shoot the, the aluminum full metal jackets and, and I've shot them for years. And, you know, they're heavy. Right. I mean, my. My setup, I just did a, um, I just did kind of a, a story here recently on my setup, but I shoot at 492 and that's my setup and it's heavy and, and people say, man, that's so heavy. And I said, well, yeah, it is, but see, that's what I like. I like weight. I like weight forward. I like a heavy setup. Now my bow, you know, it still shoots at around 280 to 285 and it, it's not a, it's not a, a roaster shooter, right? It's not shooting 300 feet per second, but I don't need that, right? I, I don't need a bow that that shoots IBO that says 330. That's that's not what I need. I I want something that has a lot of energy, a lot of kinetic energy, and a lot of weight. And that's why I've over the years actually gone more to the aluminum arrow. Um, and there's a couple reasons why I think um, you know with aluminum you can mold aluminum perfectly, right? Cylindrical, um, you can make that aluminum sheet perfect every single time, and and, and that's an advantage, right? Uh, versus you know carbon, it's fibers. Um, you know, in the lot, typically, you never know how every arrow is going to come out. you got to shoot them, right? Every every um, every single dozen arrows I get, I weigh all of them right out the gate. So I take all of them, whether they're bare shafted or whether they have fletching on them, and I weigh every single one of them. And what I do is I label them 1 to 12, and I label it on the fletch. And uh, one of the things that I, I do when I do that is, is I'm trying to find what are the five arrows that are going to go into my quiver that are equivocally 
at least from a weight standpoint, within a tolerance of, I would say, one to two grains at most, right? So I weigh them bare shaft, I weigh them fletched, then I weigh them with a practice tip, then I weigh them with a broadhead. And what I do is I narrow that, that basically that, that tolerance down to where I find my five perfectly weighted arrows that I'm going to use for practice, and then my seven arrows out of the 12 that are going to be weighted with a broadhead that are perfectly centered and, and used for when I'm hunting. And everything that I do is consistent. So one thing you might notice, like if you ever watch competition shooters like Olympic shooters, like just take something like veins or they're fletching, right? They're all the same color. And, and people ask, well, why is that? Well, because typically, you know, a vein, you don't think about a lot of guys run red, white, and blue, or they run two reds and a white or a green and two whites, et cetera. Well, when you do that, you can mix and match veins, which potentially there could be a weight tolerance difference depending on how it's scribed on there. But if you run them all the same color, typically they're coming from the same box. Um, they're coming from the same run where they're going to be very, very consistent. So that's a little thing that, you know, I've learned over the years and I've just kind of taken note as I've watched guys like, you know, Randy Ulmer years ago used to shoot Olympic shooting, John Dudley, those guys. I mean, they all will tell you, you always use the same color veins for that reason. So, so then from there, you know, knocks are another thing, you know, a lot of guys are, you know, Hey, these Luminox and, you know, and all those are, they're great, but you got to remember, you know, a standard knock is eight to 10 grains. A Luminox is 24 to 27, 28 grains. So if you're adding that stuff to your setup, you want to make sure, you know, on D-Day, when you're out there in the field, you're shooting, you know, whatever a very similar setup is on your practice setup as, as what you're going to shoot uh, when you're actually getting ready to hunt. Because I'll tell you, that little stuff, as much as folks don't pay attention to some of those little details, um, I, again, I think it can be the difference sometimes uh, of, of, you know, success versus failure. And uh, it's all those little things that you take into consideration. And, and that, for me, is where I find the most enjoyment out of all this is I do a lot of that stuff myself. So, Again, the, the, the higher level stuff, getting the bow kind of set up, you know, a lot of that I like to do with the pro shop. Again, like we said, I like to have that time with those guys. But when I start really tuning, weighing, and, and digging into my system and weighing my setup and finding the perfect, like one blade looks like it's bent, you know, I'm going to change that out. And, and, and I want to make sure that my setup, you know, at least for the five arrows in my quiver are, are going to perform perfectly every time. And, and, uh, and again, that's just me. You know, I've always enjoyed aluminum Eastern arrows. You know, I used to shoot the old super slams years ago in my old Matthews bows. And again, they kind of went away from aluminum and then they came back. And, you know, a lot of folks say there's downside to aluminum. It is heavy. You know, if your bow falls over and hits a rock and it dents the aluminum, you know, your, your arrow's probably done at that point. So there's always a trade-off, whether you use, um, you know, a carbon fiber um, arrow, whether you use a graphite arrow years ago, whether you use an aluminum arrow. Uh, but for me, I've always found um, that aluminum for me, I like the weight, I like the front uh, front of center weight, I like the weight forward, and I just love the energy that those those arrows put out. And I've uh, just always been an Easton fan for, for many years. So yeah, arrows are so important. And a lot of times, you know, guys will say, yeah, I went to Bass Pro, I bought a dozen arrows and they cut them for me and all that. And, and that's good, but there's so much more behind it. Um, like you were saying, getting them cut right and, and all that. And it, it's so key and getting the right inserts in there. And, and uh, to me, all that's important. And, and I make sure all that stuff is tuned right. Yeah, it's um, no accident that you're consistently successful, Lucas. Like just talking to you, your your attention to detail. The devil is in the details, and and it is. It's 
putting in that work prior to season and making sure that's all dialed. So, you know, this is another another chance. Like my preference is, you know, I, I I'm more on the carbon side of things. Like I uh, I like the heavier arrows like you. Uh, I've got some arrows built this year at 455, and then I've got some elk arrows that are built at 505. Um, you're right. A heavier arrow that front of center t- tends to pull it towards the target. Seems to shoot better at longer range. Also, that heavier arrow quiets down the bow. And so many of yep. these animals out west, mule deer, about one in four mule deer will jump my string. And it, you know, sometimes it can be a 160 inch buck, or sometimes it can be a 200 inch buck. Uh, same thing with antelope and and axis deer on Hawaii are horrible. I'd say three out of four of those things jump your string out there. Like they're mm-hmm. they're really switched on and tricky, but yeah, I like the carbon fiber arrows. I like a heavier weight arrow. I like that the weight up front like you, like I'll I shoot the one twenty fives and then I actually add weight to the back of the insert. Um I also like going with a shorter arrow. I like to shoot an arrow that's only an inch past my rest or a half inch past my rest because the shorter that arrow is uh, the less uh, a wind drifts, it's going to get in the air. The longer that arrow is, the more surface it has to catch wind, to blow it sideways. Um, so I, I like shooting a shorter arrow, but you have to get the correct spine so that spine matches that bow. And and um, your attention to detail and the aluminum works great for you. For me, my problems were uh, the aluminum will bend. And so even mm-hmm. the aluminum over the carbon fiber, shooting my practice arrows, sometimes I would get a bend in that arrow and I wouldn't realize it and it'd be out of the group. Now, you've already solved that problem by numbering all your arrows, tracking all your arrows, making sure if you've got a bad one, you know why. And then you can put it on a roller or a spinner and see if it's yeah. true. But I do like the carbon as it always stays straight. And so my practice arrows sometimes, you know, they go a year, two years where I'm fixing fletchings and I'm keeping them in the rotation just to have a bunch of arrows to shoot and, and uh, not have to, to spend a pile of money. So for me, the carbon works. Uh, for you, the aluminum works. And like you say, it's just personal preference and comes down to what you use and what you trust, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, that attention to detail, the way you uh, weigh your arrows when they're finished up and making sure that they're within a couple grains of each other, that all makes a difference in the end. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're spot on. It, it, it's uh, all the details of, of your bow, the way it operates, and like having that failure with your rest. I've also had rest fail me. I've had, I had a rest fail me. This was uh, two years ago. And um I came back with a vengeance this elk season. I harvested a couple really nice bulls, nice six point here in Montana, nice six by eight in Idaho there. Uh, but but that came from a year of hard work because I had I had been really good at filling my elk tags with my bow. But but two years ago it came down to the end. I didn't have a, a special tag. I was hunting general units, and the last day of the season it's just cold and there's snow in there. And I just have this really nice six point that's feeding in the timber. And he's a satellite bull, but he's still 310, 320 for a general season bull. Just a great one. And I'm stalking this thing in the trees. It's snow's falling off the trees and kind of sunlight's coming through. And this bull's just pawing at the snow. And I creep in. I mean, I've got this bull dead. I've got him at 40 yards. And I draw back and go to loose that arrow. And the rest didn't fall away because the cold had stiffened up the grease and the rest. And so my fletchings banged into the rest, and that arrow shot right into the ground. That bull took off. It was the last day of the season. And so, you know, I called my buddy with the knew the rest, and we, we figured out what went on with it. And I had practiced with that bow, but the problem was is I'd stick it in my truck. I'd go home. I'd shoot it. 
in in that time in my truck, it would warm up that grease to above freezing, and then the bow would shoot fine, and I never tested it in the cold. So I would say that now every year my bow spends a night out in the cold, at least one or two, to just shoot it after a 10-degree night, after a 5-degree night. But, yeah, it's like this this checks with all your gear and throughout the season of practicing you're keeping an eye on all this gear and this is why you got to know your gear inside and out i've had buddies with the rest cord stretch in the rain and now all of a sudden that rest cord is stretched out and that bow doesn't shoot you know and so throughout the season it's testing all these different things it's shooting this bow and if you have anything go wrong you got to figure out exactly what it is and you change out that component or you send that component in you do whatever it takes because you know, usually if something's going to fail, there's usually signs of that. It's going to misfire in practice, or it's going to do this in practice, or boy, that arrow is weird. It didn't even hit the target. Like you better figure out what that was because uh, you can guarantee it's going to rear its head. Uh, you know, at the at the least opportune moment when you're drawn back on a big bull or something like that. You know. No, absolutely. And you know, my instance was the brake actually locked up on the the rest, so it wouldn't it, it wouldn't fall away at all. And this was. I mean, I was in New Mexico, it was 73 days, so I didn't, you know, it wasn't about cold, it wasn't about any of that, it was it was an internal mechanical failure that had happened with the rest, and, and uh, I took it back and literally gave up an afternoon of hunting to try to, to get this thing fixed, and, and the brake just was locked in there, and I, I couldn't fix it, but it, again, everywhere I go, I have two bows with me, and, and uh, you know, I've traveled the world, I've been to, like, say, New Zealand, Australia, Africa, South America, I've been a lot of different places, and, uh, you know, my SKB case typically is always carrying two bows, and, and a lot of people look at me weird like that. But, you know, when you invest in some of these trips and, and, and you go on some of these hunts, and I know, Brian, you've done a lot of them as well, both international, but also even hunts in the States, um, you put a lot of, of, of time and energy into these, and, and they cost money too. And the last thing you want, you know, is your system or, or something to fail. And, and that's happened before, and it's happened to me, and I've I've always gotten to a point where I told myself I'm always going to bring a backup system and uh, whether it be enough tools for me to work on the existing bow I have, or if I can't fix it and I need a press, I'm just going to pull up my backup bow. And, and uh, so I've, I've made that, I've made that commitment to myself. Uh, although on my last trip I did to Alaska in September, I, I did a DIY moose hunt and I, and I only took my verdicts and, and that was partly in due to weight because, you know, we were limited to, to 80 pounds. It was a 15 day hunt where we were very limited on the, on the flight in with our cub flight to, to on weight. So I, I couldn't bring two bows with me, but generally speaking, uh, if I'm anywhere in the lower 48, um, I'm packing two bows in my bow case. And uh, in the event I have failure, um, I feel hundred percent confident in my backup bow. If I need to get it out and, you know, New Mexico, that, that scenario happened and I needed it. And uh, I was not successful on that hunt, and it wasn't because uh, wasn't because of my backup bow. It was because I was, you know, I was there to hunt uh, a bull, uh, you know, that that uh, you know I was looking for. I was looking for a, a big bull, and I saw those bulls, and, and I had opportunities. I just didn't I didn't get the right shot uh, opportunities and didn't make it happen. But um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be able to have multiple bows to take on a, on a trip with me in the event one fails. And a lot of people can't afford that or can't do that and, and, and totally understand that. But again, that's just me. I've been in those situations where, um, you know, I've been in a place where, uh, you know, an issue with a peep comes up or like you say, the cord 
on the uh, on the rest um, gets stretched in, or something happens with a cable and you need a press, and and that's really when you need a press at that point. That's where it becomes um, you know go or no go. And and if you're fortunate to be be somewhere that has a bow press, then then you're good. But you know most folks just don't have a a bow press sitting out in their backyard or you know in uh, in the middle of uh, Limpopo in South Africa. So you're you're kind of hosed at that point. So anyway, so yeah, you're exactly right, Brian. I mean it. it it does come down to uh, knowing that system so well and uh, to the point where, um, you know, you know it so well. I mean, if, if I was to send you the spreadsheets I have on the arrows I've had over the years and the weights and just with, you know, bare shaft tuning and then fletching and then broadheads and field points and luminox and non-luminox, it, it's, it's somewhat nauseating to most people, but I can look at that spreadsheet and say, I know exactly what I'm shooting. I know, like I say, what my my five practice arrows are shooting at. I know what my seven weighted arrows are shooting at my broadhead, which five of those go in my quiver to stay ready in the event I need to replace them. Uh, and I, I feel confident enough to know that, um, you know, I'm going to put a, hopefully a perfectly placed arrow out there every time. And if I don't, I know it's going to be me. And uh, and if I don't do that, I'm going to, like I say, validate that it was me, which in this last instance, you know, with this turkey hunt I did, it was 100% me. And, uh, you know, like I said, it just proves the point that, uh, you know, our work is never done and, and there's, there's so much more for us to aspire to. And, and uh, I'm not sure there ever is Nirvana or, or you know, 100 um, percent, you know, what that looks like in, in an archery hunter's world, because I think all of us have failed. And, and I think it's like I say, those failures that uh, make us better and make us want to be better uh, at the end of the day. So 100 percent agree, man. Absolutely. I love that second bow i try to do that a lot too is just have a backup bow that i work with all year long that i trust in that's just ready to rock and roll and i i love having that bow with me you know sometimes if i can't have that or i'm trying to save weight it seems like i'm always trying to shove gear in that that bow case or whatever i can just bring an extra string and a portable press and i'll bring an extra sight extra rest but being prepared for those scenarios because they they do come up and a lot of that is just knowing your bow inside and out like you just being able to look over your bow like there there's so much even these newer bows vibration that happens to these bows yeah, i like to have screws locked tighted in and things but just a look over your bow just up and down just to uh, make sure that your limbs aren't splintering or uh, make sure that you that you you know your serving isn't coming loose or your serving isn't sliding or your serving isn't cut or looking at your strands and you know making sure that you 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 keep bow wax on them to keep the moisture from soaking in or some guys don't wax their strings but I like to wax mine and get some life out of them but just this check throughout your bow you know I had an accuracy problem it's been a year now but where I was starting to get some weird arrows and things and you know just did a check over my bow visually and then looked down at my rest and in my rest it didn't have any part of the fall away, the operation of it, but two small little Allen screws that are holding that rest that holds my arrow in there, they had loosened up, you know, and so that thing was just loose on there. Well, there's no way I'm going to get accuracy like that. Luckily, I found it in practice, Loctited them in there. You know, I'm never going to yeah. have another issue, but just that that check over your bow and then knowledge to know how to fix those. I've, I've had a rock marmot chew through my, my rest cord and chew through my string loop one night, you know? And oh, wow. so I woke up in the morning, it was in uh, Northwest Montana, one of the gnarliest mountain ranges up there. And I woke up and I'd slept too high on a rock knob and these rock marmots had chewed on my bow. Luckily they didn't chew through the string. I was able to, um, I can't remember exactly what I did with the, with the string. I think I, 
I either had some string cord with me. I don't think it was a shoelace fit or somehow I was able to tie it back together, had some string loop tied on a new string loop and then um, shot like I always carry a field point with me shot an arrow into the dirt or actually shot it into the rocks, which I thought was dirt. You know, it's like nothing yeah. soft up there, but you know, knew my bow was on. And then, you know, a few days later I ended up killing a really nice Montana deer, but it was only because I knew how to fix my bow back in there that that was able to happen. So yeah, just, just knowing your system inside and out, whether you go to shop, whether you work on it yourself, just that visual check to look over things. And then I love what you say, just always being prepared. And whether that's a, little backcountry kit with allens and some serving and what i used in that case or you know whether it's having that extra bow back in your truck where if something goes wrong you just hike out you grab that extra bow you know it's dialed i love running that program too just that that extra bow ready to rock and roll at all times just where anything happens i had uh david wise the two-time olympic gold medalist hunted with us last year in hawaii and he never puts his bow on his pack he always carries it so my buddy Rob, they were hiking out one night, and he's actually recovering from a, a femur break in skiing, which uh, mm. just a huge break, but he, he's just uh, so mentally tough and hunting so hard. So Rob goes, hey, put your bow on your pack. Let's hike out of here. And he de-strings his bow that night. You know, it's never happened to him before. And now he's all wow. the way in Hawaii, no backup bow, and he's de-strung, and nobody has a press, you know. And so uh, – yeah. We got a little inventive with some ratchet straps. Straps. It may have been a little <laughs> sketchy, but we did yeah. get his string back on, and he ended up, you know, shooting one a couple days later. But without that knowledge uh, of that equipment, we never would have been able to to get his strings back on and get it shooting again. So yeah, man, so imperative to to finding success. Yeah. No, it's it's funny you tell these stories, and, and I can, it's funny just how you relate with you know maybe not personal experience, but being out there where you've been with, with guys where this stuff's happened, you know, and you do, you have to get, you know, I, you know, I call it, you know, it's, it's, it's like in the industry I work in, I work in the oil industry, but it's oil field engineering and, you know, I have an engineering degree by trade. So, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of times I have to stretch my imagination or, or look at my surroundings and say, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we, you know, how are we going to fix this? And, and, uh, you know, that's, you know, I, I just think that's, what's neat about it. And, and, and if you know enough, um, you know, about your setup or a general setup, you can take a Hoyt, you can take a Prime, you can take, you name the bow company, right? And, and they're all, for the most part, set up pretty similar, you know, based on, you know, the design and, and, and how they're built that you can pretty much do, you know, you can limp a bow across the goal line if you need to and, and, and get a guy to a point where, you know, if he is in the moment of truth, he can, he can make the shot happen if there is something that goes happen, you know, wrong in the, in the backcountry. But, you know, I tell you, as, as great as the bows, they're making them now, and, and it's just incredible. Like you said, I think, you know, back in the days, Fred Bear and those guys were chasing, you know, monster brown bears in Alaska with these, you know, longbow recurve setups. And look where we've come now to these systems that are just incredible, the way they're designed, the way they're manufactured. You know, I, I was a part of the uh, Verdicts film last year when they released the Verdicts, and uh, I went up and did some shooting for that. I was in the last scene in the video and but I got to get in a little bit on the front end of that bow and really understand how it was made how it was designed right and and, uh, and the video talks to that right and uh, so you know you're, you're shooting this bow and it's so quiet and it's put together so well a little heavy but uh, it's a great bow and then they come out with this bow called the VXR and you're like how could there be a better bow on the market right now than the verdicts and then you don't put your hands on the VXR and you shoot one and you're like wow 
wow, this is incredible, you know, and here I've got a, you know, a multi-thousand dollar backup setup of a Vertex, which is an incredible bow, and, and I'm still using it. I just harvested a, a nice wild boar here last weekend with it, and uh, but I'm here, I'm getting ready to transition over uh, to my VXR, which I, I'm pretty confident, I feel like I've got it tuned to the point I'm going to start using it and, in the field. Uh, but again, I can always rely and go back to, you know, if I got the Vertex, and if worse comes to worse, I can pull that out back out, and I would feel 100% confident at 50, 60 yards shooting that thing at any animal, any any North American animal out there. Uh, and again, I know that bow's pretty old. It's a solo cam. It's it's louder than heck when the string goes off. But I tell you what, I've never had a more reliable bow in my life than that Matthews Outback. And it's just having that confidence and knowing that you've got setups that, uh, like you said, you've got to run back to the truck, pull it out of the truck. Um, you know, you're not losing any time other than the time you had to spend to go back and change out your bows and, and uh, being able to pull them out of the box and, and shoot them and, and be confident is so important. And stuff happens and, and the accidents happen. And, and uh, you know, sometimes, you know, one thing I tell people, they'll, sometimes they'll just draw their bow back without an arrow in it. And I tell anyone, anytime you ever draw your bow back, always put an arrow in it because there is the time that your release might fail or something could happen. And if you dry fire that bow, you're done. Right, you're absolutely done. So, at any time you ever draw your bow back, always put an arrow in it. And if you lose an arrow and you launch one because the release let go or your trigger or whatever, that's okay. But if you do it without an arrow in it, I can tell you probably 99.9 times out of 100, um, those strings and cables are going to wrap up over that bow, and you're not going to be able to replace it out in the field. So, anyway, just again, all this stuff—it's it's neat hearing your stories, Brian, and obviously contrasting mine and. And we're all different, and I think that's the that's what makes it so cool is 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 the industry allows for us to be you know diverse and and find our way and pick our way and and shoot what you want and and the one constant for me has always been it's been Matthews and and uh, I've just been so sold on their bows for so many years and uh, have formed relationships with with some of the employees there and and uh, just love the company love their values love the American made piece and and love the products that they put out and, and, uh, it would take, you know, a lot for me to even consider thinking about changing, you know, to a different bow, just the way it feels in my hand. The new grip system they have is incredible and, and, uh, just love uh, what they've been doing over the years. And, but again, all my good friends shoot Hoyts or they shoot other companies and it's awesome because again, the competition is what makes these companies better day in and day out. And, and I think that's what makes the industry what it is and, and, uh, just enjoy seeing that. So, uh, it is. It's neat. Uh, it's neat talking about it. I don't get to geek out a lot of times with people about archery stuff because most of them aren't as serious or into it as I am. But it is fun uh, to be able to do that from time to time. Yeah, I can just tell you're all in. And like I said earlier, it's uh, no accident that you're consistently successful in it. You know, anything in life that you love to, you, it's enjoyable to spend time thinking about it and and uh, uh, tweaking with your setup and and making sure everything's honed and. That attention to detail, man, it pays off in the end. Uh, so, yeah, it's just so fun to sit sit and talk to you and, and compare. And I, I always like the different approaches, too. Uh, uh, you're, you're just – you're every bit as successful or more successful in the field as, as I am, but we do things different and, and have different preferences. And I think it's good to – discuss that and and um, look at our look at our own gear and our own setup as well but you had mentioned you have a 2020 stone sheep hunt um yeah man, what an amazing opportunity good for you so 
you pulled the trigger. This is a big hunt for you. Have you have you hunted sheep quite a bit in the past? I have. Um, I have been a part of sheep hunts. Uh, I've never had a sheep tag in my pocket, but um, this is going to be. Um, you know, an experience for me that, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've never been behind, you know, a scope or, a or, a, a you know, a bow on, on a sheep. So this is, this is going to be pretty surreal for me. Um, you know, this has been a couple of years of planning, right? You just can't go stone sheep hunting typically in a few months. So I've, I've been planning this for a long time. And, you know, the unfortunate part is right now is with so much uncertainty in, in the world right now, we're, we're, we're booked. We're ready to go. I mean, everything is, I mean, I mean, everything is ready. Flights are booked. The downside is, is the border in Canada is closed and non-essential travel is very restricted and there's mandatory quarantines and a lot of things going on right now that um, have it still a little bit of, of some uncertainty in my mind. Although, um, you know, I'm, we're still staying optimistic and, and then talking to the, you know, the outfitter weekly and, and just to confirm how are things going. But um, yeah, it's, this is, this is surreal for me. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm on track to do my 29 and, and, and that's what I want to do. And, and I want to do it with my bow. And, and, uh, part of that is, is shooting all four sheep, right. And, uh, and shooting, you know, all three species of elk and, and you name it. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a big goal. It's a lofty goal, but, um, I see guys that have done it and I see guys that have done it over and over. And, and, and these are the guys, you know, that I look up to these guys that have, you know, like say Chuck Adams and, and Fred Bear and all these guys that really paved somewhat the, the, I would say the roadmap for, for guys like me, you and others that have really made bow hunting a passion. These are the guys that are, you talk about mentors and you learn from them. And, and, uh, you know, if you get a minute with them at a trade show and, and you just ask them, you know, what's the, what's the one thing you never go without, or just that one question, you know, you're always looking for that little gem, uh, from these guys. But, uh, yeah, 2020, um, you know, amidst the uh, the pandemic, has still been a, a great year. I shot a mountain lion uh, right on New Year's Day in Montana this year. That was an incredible hunt. Had my brother there with me. We had such a great time. Shot a nice tom. Um, I've shot I shot two turkeys. I've shot a couple pigs here in in California so far. Which, you know, I don't I don't let the wrap out on it. But the hunting in California, I tell you what, is 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 actually really good. Uh, and and I don't tell a lot of people that because I. I don't want a lot of people knowing that, but, uh, now the deer hunting, we have some incredible tule elk here. Uh, the pig hunting, the turkey hunting is phenomenal. And our black tail hunting is, I tell you, they are the gray ghosts of the Pacific and there's nothing more that I have a passion for here is chasing those, those, um, black tails here on the coast. So had a trip to uh, Texas to do an odd ad in March. That was, uh, unfortunately postponed. So, but yeah, the big trip this year, uh, is, is stone sheep, uh, that is planned, uh, August 1 through August 15. So, um, it's, it's coming here, you know, as the, one of the guys going with me is a good friend of mine, huge, um, sheep outfitter in, in Utah. And he's been a part of, you know, probably close to 200 sheep hunts in his life. And, uh, you know, he, when he told me that, uh, he wanted to go to BC one last time, you know, and I told him, I said, well, I want you to go with me. You know, he's like, well, I'd be honored, you know, to, to do this with you. And, uh, so I, I'm just, I'm just so excited to, to take him with me. And, and this probably be one of his last trips. He's actually shot, uh, almost two slams of sheep and, and he's been to this outfit three times. So he knows what to expect and, uh, and will be a really good resource there for me. And, uh, just really excited uh, for that. And, and, uh, you know, like I say, it's just a surreal experience to be able to, to go to, you know, a, a different country and, and hunt a different species of animal that, uh, is, you know, completely different than, you know, like Nevada deer, you know, I've got this Nevada deer tag and, uh, I've got Montana deer and elk this year and I'm 
planning a trip to Kodiak in November for deer. So all those hunts, you know, have, you know, a special, you know, something special about them, but every one of them is so different. And, uh, but yeah, the, the stone hunt by far, uh, this is probably going to be one of the, the bigger trips that, uh, you know, that I've done, I would say North America for sure. And, uh, only taking my bow and, uh, I, I know that if I if I brought a rifle, I knew how it would end, and I know if I only bring a bow, that's the only way in and the only way out. So um, it is a big risk in doing that, and and uh, and everyone's telling me you're crazy. I'm talking to a lot of guys that have done stone hunts and said you're crazy not bringing a rifle, and I guess that just adds more fuel uh, to my fire to get it done on a legal ram. So anyway, yeah, just just really excited about it, and. Uh, so, you know, if anything, if I come home, it's going to be a great experience, whether I harvest or not. And, uh, you know, and, and that's really what it's about for me. I want the experience, you know, the, to me, the meat's always been secondary. It's the experience uh, for me is what's always been number one and sharing that with, with others, friends, people is, is the important part. So yeah, super stoked for that, man. Yeah. That's where we're exactly the same. The experience. Good for you. I, I don't think you're crazy a bit. I am so happy for you. How cool to just commit to your bow. The the bow is such an intimate experience. And then, you know, like like up in that mountain terrain where you get to travel to go hunt these stone sheep, um, man, I, I mean, it's the most rugged, remote, um, awe-inspiring everywhere you look as a painting uh, and, and just tough living. It's going to take grit, determination. It's going to take everything that you've built you know, for your last 20 years of bow hunting or however long you've been bow hunting, all these skills you've obtained, this is where you get to put them to the test, you know, is on this, this super adventure up for these stone sheep, man. I couldn't be more happy for you. That is, that is going to be so cool. Um, yeah, man. Yeah. So it's actually the location it's in the Casier mountains. So it's right, I guess, just South of Northwest territories. Um, in the Casiers, um, Scoop Lake Outfitters is the outfitter. Darwin Carey, who's someone who's very reputable uh, in BC, is the outfitter, and and he's been just awesome working with him right now. And, and and as you know, everyone's dealing with some sort of anxiety because of what's going on in in the country right now, and again, really globally in the world. So we're all trying to work together, and we're all trying to figure this out together. And uh, again, I'm. I'm 100% in. I'm I'm very very optimistic, and and if at the end of the day it happens to where I have to push it out a year, um, you know I'm going to be 100% prepared whether I do it this year or next year. Um, you know I'm running you know three to five miles a day. I'm throwing a heavy pack on, doing you know pack trips. You know I'm continually hunting year round out here, so I'm ready and I'm going to be ready. I would be ready to go tomorrow, but if it doesn't happen. Um, you know, due to circumstances outside of my control, that is what it is. And, uh, you know, we just move on and, and we make the most out of it. And, uh, you know, we look forward to it whenever it's going to happen. But, uh, yeah, man, hopefully, uh, hopefully by mid to late August, I've got some good news for you that, uh, or at least a picture I can shoot over to you of a, of a pretty sweet, uh, dark, dark bodied stone up in the Northern BC area. So yeah, super stoked. That's so incredible. Good. Uh, so, uh, I like the dark-bodied ones too. No, I mean, I'd hunt any sheep. <laughs> they are the yeah. uh, absolute specimen, you know, in North America. But gosh dang, uh, you had to hunt those those dark ones too. Um, that's amazing. And those stone sheep—they're just such beautiful, uh, wide curls to them, you know. Um, I, yeah. I like those thin horn sheep. I like all those sheep, but what a great adventure that you've been planning to planning for for a couple of years. And then, like, just 
you have such a, a great outlook and bow hunter's mindset of just if it gets pushed, you know, you're controlling everything you can control on your side. You're going to be 100% ready. And then just to have that attitude where if it doesn't happen or it gets pushed back another year, it is what it is. I'll, I'll deal with that when it comes. Um, it, it's just such a, a great attitude for life and great attitude for bow hunting. And, um, you know, when you're out there, it it isn't always easy. And you're, you're always going to have hurdles thrown your way. And in a lot of this the successful bow hunting is being able to adapt to the conditions you're given, you know? So that's just out of your hands and out of your control. And so it's something that you just can't stress out or worry about, you know, if it, yeah. if it happens, it happens. But I just love that, man. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, meeting you and getting to have an in-depth conversation about both of our passions, bow hunting. Yeah, no, I, Brian, I appreciate having you on the on. And, and uh, like I said, I know we've, we've tried to connect over the last few years and it's, you know, life is just crazy and it gets, you know, a lot of things, you know, happen and heck we go to these trade shows and, you know, Hey, I'm going to be in Salt Lake. Okay. Let's connect. And next thing you know, it's Saturday or Sunday and, you know, and completely, you know, had so many other things going on, but, uh, this is just such a cool way to, to connect with, with people and, and, uh, and again, talk about things that you're passionate about, right? This is to me is no different than sitting around a campfire after a successful, you know, elk hunt or you name the hunt and just talking about the experience. And that's what I tell people as being, you know, it's kind of interesting. I'm, you know, as being a, a host of a podcast and kind of sitting on the other end of it uh, here, it, it's different for me a little bit because, you know, you kind of guide them and you kind of guide the guests. And, but in this case, I, I get to tell part of my story and I get to tell, which I don't get to do hardly ever. Right. I'm always listening to, to everyone else and in in my guests, which is why I want them on there is because I want them to be able to, you know, talk about those things. But, Rarely do I get, you know, guests that are so passionate about bow hunting where I can really open up and share a lot of my, I wouldn't say dark secrets, but things that I do in my kit and my system, um, you know, that I think are, again, what make me, you know, probably successful. And, and uh, again, there's so many ingredients that, that go into it. it. It's it's not a two plus two equals four type of thing. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. Like you say, you work all year long and, and you stress all year and, uh, and you put so much time and effort into whether it's, you know, emotional or spiritual in your mind or it's physical out there, you know, shooting or it's training, you know, it's putting on a heavy pack and, and running up a mountain or doing whatever, all that stuff and all those sweat and tears, you know, that come out, come down to that, you know, that one time where, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys that have done this hunt and uh, they said, man, I, we saw one legal ram in 12 days and I had my one opportunity, right? And, and I just mentally in my mind say, you know, I've got, I've got the first season dates, which I'm stoked about because I should get hopefully first crack at, at the sheep and Darwin's a pilot. So he flies the area quite a bit as he's bringing in hunters and, and getting the camps ready. So he's got a pretty good idea, right? Where the sheep hang out. It's, it's, you know, it's never obviously a slam dunk with sheep hunting. Like you say, it's, it's high alpine elevation, very shaly, um, you know, and these sheep are darker. Uh, they are uh, in the northern BC portion. They are the darker bodied sheep, not like the Northwest Territory ones are a little lighter, but um, there's no guarantees, right? And, and uh, hope is we get there in, in early August, weather's not going to be an issue. But as you know, hunting like places like Alaska, you know, I've, I've spent 15 days in remote Alaska where I don't think you could have walked out and survived. And I've spent of those 15 days, four to five of them in a tent where you know, the rain was blowing sideways and the wind was blowing 60 miles an hour. I mean, you can't, 
physically get out and even glass anything because it, it's it's just the weather's so bad. So, you know, putting putting as much, uh, you know, one of the things I say is try to put, you know, as many advantages on your side. And I think having the early dates is going to be a, a bonus because the weather should be better. Although it will be warmer, we should run into a lot of weather. And, uh, yeah, and just go all in. And, and uh, like I said, I'm going to give it everything I have. And if at the end of the day I walk away with an incredible experience and a sheep on the wall, to me, that's the, the gravy part of it. But uh, if I don't, you know, I can always hopefully, you know, God willing, go back and do it again uh, if I'm not successful. And uh, I've had many big hunts where I was not successful. And, uh, you know, it, it hurts a little bit. It definitely stings. Uh, and then a week later, you're on to the next adventure and whatever that is. And, and I think that's what the beauty of it is. So anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, super stoked, man. So cool. Yeah, the the fun is in in being there and doing it. Like it's just going to be so special for you. Look looking forward to it, preparing for it, and then when you actually get there and get to to breathe in that air, get to look at those mountains, start glassing, start putting those miles in. Man, those are those those are those days that we live for. It's so cool. But uh yeah, congratulations yep. on the podcast RNA uh, outdoors. Um Yes. Man, it, uh, it's just awesome to connect with you. And next time we, we are at a show, we do have to connect face-to-face. Uh, but thanks again, man, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime, Brian. Appreciate what you're doing. And, you know, I as I as I do podcasts, you know, I tell people I appreciate their story. I appreciate what they want to talk about. You know, everyone has a story, and I think that's what's important. And, you know, this industry, so it's just so amazing, you know, being – you know, less than 1% of the world's population and you have some of the most incredible people in the world, you know, that, that love the outdoors and love to share the outdoors. And uh, I love finding those people and, and having them share their stories. I think it, it's so incredible and, and uh, just neat to, to meet new people. So yeah, Brian, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and, and good luck with you. You know, I know you've got a lot of hunts. Sounds like you've drawn some good tags and uh, excited to see how all that unravels for you. And, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, knowing you and seeing you, you know, you, you typically uh, tend to get it done. So it's, it's fun watching you as well. So good luck on uh, your adventures this year as well. Thanks so much. Yeah. And let's, uh, let's get together after season. We have so many adventures we're going on. It'd be nice to touch bases and um, talk about how they went. That sounds good. Okay. sounds like a plan. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Fun conversation with Lucas. He can tell he's getting ready for season. I uh, just love his attention to detail, and um, man, he, he sure is intelligent in his approach to bow hunting and, and how he looks at things, and, and then good in his execution. I just love having these, I, you know, I say it all the time, but these in-depth conversations about bow hunting, it's, you know, we're 230 episodes in, and I, I still just don't get tired of it. Uh, just I just love it, and every one is different. So thanks to you guys for all the support. I really appreciate it. Uh, make sure to check out our sponsors, Mountain Archery Fest. They have their last event coming up in Durango, Colorado. Um, you can put in the, the promo code ELEVATE15. That'll get you 15% off of that uh, Durango, Colorado shoot. And also get you a digital subscription to Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal and Eastman's Hunting Journal. So thanks to those guys and, and congratulations to them for putting on these good events this season and getting guys that, that practice they need. I also want to thank Zamberlin Boots. Um, again, I'm using that that Zamberlin 320 Trail Light GTX. The thing is just an awesome boot. Absolutely love it. Uh, been getting in my miles. Been getting in my training. Um, man, 
some great hunts, some great adventures coming up this season. I absolutely cannot wait. Uh, so, so just trying to take myself and my body and my mind to another level, mm. trying to get you know all my responsibilities taken care of. I just absolutely can't wait for season. So I'll be back out on the trails again today. Was out on the trails yesterday, uh, day in, day out, really trying to get in my upper body work. I've got my back 100%, and so now it's just strengthening it and uh, being able to rely upon it. But some big mile days. We did um, done the Western Hunting Summit the last couple weekends, did the Elk Summit and the Mule Deer Summit. Um, so that's just been great. Uh, and, and also there's a two day hike that goes along with it. So, um, been pushing it and getting good elevation in that those good ruck workouts are really important for me where I have weight on my back and then go put on a bunch of miles. It just, just gets my back used to, to carrying that pack. Uh, so along with my trail running, making sure to get in my ruck workouts, my upper body workouts, uh, map study is every single day. hundred arrows is every single day. I uh, got that VXR just shooting. Man, oh man, that thing is lights out. It was able to, um, they they have a competition in the summit, uh, beat Brian Barney, where you have to uh, shoot from every distance and you get one arrow and you got to keep it in an eight inch vital, like on a, on a solo target uh, 3D sheet. And so I've been fortunate to be able to pull it off the last couple weekends and end up on top. So uh, thanks to that VXR, that thing is just a shooter. And um, it, it's just been really fun getting together with all these like-minded guys. So I'm having a blast. Training is going good. Feeling 100%. Uh, some good tags in my back pocket. So, um, man, I'm just ready to rip, as I'm sure you guys are too. So I'm going to really try to time these podcasts to get you guys that pertinent information before season. So I got some great ones coming up. Um, one spot in stock elk hunting. Uh, I did, I just did one at the mule deer summit where I got Travis Nowatney and I got, uh, uh, Dione. I always mess up his name, but Amagutsky. Oh gosh, I messed it up again. Sorry, Dione. He's a heck of a mule deer hunter. I wish his name wasn't so hard to say, <laughs> but a heck of a mule deer hunter, heck of a guy. And then also Zach Kenner, uh, one of the guys that that moved to Alaska, but he he always has been a really good mule deer hunter and continues to be. So we get us four on the podcast and get talking mule deer. But I just really want to get you guys out this really pertinent information that's going to help you be successful this season because it's it's right on the forefront now. I mean, it's coming. We're um what about a month and a half out or a month out from from season starting to open up. So. Oh, it's crazy. It's so exciting. I swear I get more excited every year it comes around, but I can't wait for my backcountry test this year. Um, really going to hold out for some good critters. Uh, I'm going to enjoy the process, enjoy the journey, enjoy having the time off and the adventure. I just absolutely can't wait. I know you guys can't either. That's why you're listening to this podcast. And uh, I just really appreciate the support, you guys. Uh, the shares, the the listens, uh, the social media. It's just been great here lately. Just so much positivity and support uh, around this podcast. So I just couldn't be happier that this content connects with you guys and you get something out of it and uh, help break up your day a little bit. I'm, I'm sure the majority of 
of your blue collar workers just like I am. You know, we're you got to put those hours in, and it just seems like uh, if you can plug in a podcast, you know, you can sure make that time fly. And I don't get to do it every day, but while I'm traveling and and sometimes while I'm working or solo working, to be able to to get something out of your listening, to be able to to listen and to uh, you know, good information. It's just um. It's awesome. I love this platform of podcasting. So thanks, you guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, make sure to check out that giveaway over at TagHub. Again, TagHub, it's a it's a great program that we're improving and evolving all the time. There's so much good information in there, and we're giving away $16,000 worth of gear. Uh, so make sure to check out that TagHub if you're interested in that. And with that, that's a podcast, guys. I'll check in with you next week.